Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's Economics Editor, and for the next half hour, I'll be walking you through our financial year in review. I'm joined by Martin Vanderweer, The Spectator's Business Editor, and Paul Aberly, Chief Executive of the Charles Stanley Group. And this podcast is kindly sponsored by Charles Stanley. So thanks both of you so much for joining me. Let's start with some good news, shall we? It seems that the British economy and indeed the world's economy have been bouncing back from COVID-19. There have been serious teething pains, labor shortages, a few empty shelves, but really it's a sign that the economies have been kickstarted yet again, right, Paul? Yes, indeed. This is certainly looking much healthier, but of course, we're not out of the woods by any means with the, the latest measures that you're seeing rolled out around the world. And it's a, it's a nuanced impact on investors, because on the one hand, clearly, as an investor, you want a strong global economy. On the other hand, when COVID is an issue, the central bank and fiscal response is actually very friendly for markets. Mm-hmm. So ironically, as an investor, you might do better in a weakened economy with loose fiscal monetary policy than in one that has to stand on its own feet. And we may be in a weaker economy for some time, Martin, because here in the UK, Plan B is coming into action. Some people are calling it lockdown by stealth, especially for businesses and city centres that are so reliant on those office workers who have now been told to work from home. Larger venues that have to implement vaccine passports will see a hit to their profits from that as well. It's not as obvious too, that loose monetary policy is necessarily our future. No, and I think it's now clear that the recovery is going to rapidly slow. So what we've seen is a quite extraordinary shape graph, GDP growth, particularly where you know, we lost 9% of it. Last year, we were regaining, we will have regained 5% or so in the UK this year. But the prospect for next year is, I think, much, much more variable. And actually, what I, what I mean by that is I think the growth achieved next year will be considerably lower than forecasters were saying two or three months ago. And the hiccups in the economy, the blockages, labor shortages, all of those things will continue exacerbated by what you've just described and a fall off of productivity from sending people back to working from home, hitting the hospitality sector yet again, all of that, aviation, and so on. As to monetary policy, I've become myself rather sceptical of the impact of the unconventional monetary tools, but also now a sort of frozen rabbit in the headlights interest rate policy. We were going to have an interest rate rise, then we didn't. Now we're probably not. If we get an interest rate rise, it'll be tiny, hesitant, fractional. Will it make the slightest difference? I'm sure we're going to go on and talk about inflation. But I worry that there are really, you know, the toolbox is bust or empty in monetary terms. We're coming back to inflation and the prospect of interest rates momentarily. But first, Paula, I'd like your thoughts on this, because the prime minister's become rather addicted to easy money. His Tory party has gotten into the mindset that they can have lots of things for free. No doubt when the emergency measures were needed, the Bank of England was very willing to make sure that the Treasury would have the cash to supply them. But even now the Treasury is pushing back and suggesting that, you know, these things have trade-offs. If you want tax cuts in the future, if you want to do some other stuff, you can't always be spending on COVID. But, you know, this is becoming a very difficult discussion as they're bringing in new restrictions. Yeah, indeed. I think one of the major discoveries of the year we've just ended is the existence of the magic money tree. Mm. It was always said to be not around, and hence we went through years of austerity, not just in the UK, 
but around the world. And of course, I think when governments can spend freely as they've had to do, they've had no choice during the COVID crisis, when they look at the impact and think, well, actually, nothing's gone wrong as a result of spending all this. Perhaps we've been mistaken in thinking that the public sector has to manage its accounts like a family would do. If that doesn't hold, then it's very tempting to spend very freely, whether it's the necessary action with regard to COVID or whether it's a Northern Powerhouse project, whether it's putting more money into the NHS. It's going to be very tempting just to carry on spending. And clearly the Treasury are supposed to be in the position of standing out against that view. But you even wonder whether they're going to hold the line. I think on balance, it's more likely that the free fiscal approach that we've seen in the last two years will carry forward, particularly in the UK with the government that we have. It's an interesting prospect, isn't it, Martin, that perhaps even the perspective of the Conservative Party would have changed on this. However, there is one person who for basically the whole year, long before economists and most politicians were talking about the prospects of inflation, was very nervous about it. And that was the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Now it does seem that inflation is no longer transitory, at least by its technical definition, something that Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, actually conceded a few weeks ago. Perhaps people are starting to get a bit nervous that if things haven't gone wrong yet, they still could do in the near future. Yeah. So on the subject of the public finances, I think a cost-benefit analysis, as it were, of the spending directly thrown at COVID, furlough scheme, business support, all that extra NHS spending, actually, history will judge that to have been bold and wise spending. The problem is, as you say, the Prime Minister and some of the Cabinet now believe in the magic money tree, so that every other project or prospect that might keep them a little more popular and so on, all the levelling up stuff, you name it, they are in that mood of throwing money. Rishi Sunak, I think, has been pushing back, quite rightly. I think we had to have tax rises. There has to be, you know, a common sense approach that says we've just borrowed a gigantic amount of money that's very unnatural there has to be more tax revenue to take it back over a period of time but the curious thing is one thing inflation does is it erodes debt so the public debt Mm -hmm. problem will actually be alleviated somewhat if we do have a longer run of inflation which i think we're now set for and can't really stop and I am very, very dubious whether, as I said earlier, whether the monetary tools available can do very much to stop this bout of inflation. Paul, what do you make of this with Powell saying now that perhaps inflation isn't going to be transitory? You've had Ben Broadbent, the deputy governor of the Bank of England here in the UK, now going against his bank's own forecast from just a month or so ago, saying inflation will comfortably exceed 5% next year. Are you worried? Yes, and we have been for some time. To be honest, I think a lot of the transitory inflation views coming out of central banks was as much wishful thinking Mm -hmm. as it was conviction. Because while you can point, as they did, to short-term things that are pushing prices up and they are transitory in nature, I think at the same time there's something deeper going on, which is certainly a slowdown and probably a reversal of the globalisation we've seen in the last 20 years. And whether that was through freer trade, whether it was free movement of labour, one aspect of globalisation has been it's been very disinflationary 
And as that now goes into reverse, we can't rely on that to keep inflation low and stable. So, yes, I think we need to expect high levels of inflation going forward. And that's a big dilemma for central banks and for governments, because for the central banks, we haven't had normal interest rates, by which I mean interest rates that are the same level as inflation, so 2-3%. We haven't had normal interest rates for 20 years. The central banks don't know quite how sensitive the modern economy is to interest rates. It's guesswork. There's nothing to go on. And of course, if you're on the government side of the argument, the last thing you need right now is normal interest rates, because then your debt servicing Mm -hmm. goes through the roof. Yes, the inflation reduces the real value of that debt, but your debt service costs are going to soar if you're looking at 3% interest rates. Martin, as you hinted at earlier in this podcast, the Bank of England is really dancing around this issue of interest rates. How much longer can they hold out for in in not raising them? Well, they simply reversed their position, as far as anyone can tell. There was a widespread expectation and messaging from the bank that there would be a a rise from 0.1 to 0.25. Then seven of the nine MPC members read all the incoming data and basically changed their minds. Now the data's got worse again, so the expectation is there isn't going to be a rise. What the bank, however, has been doing, I mean, Paul's expression, wishful thinking, is one description of it, but it's this, I think, forward guidance is a sort of more technical expression, but anyway, trying to influence the markets by telling them where inflation is going and hoping the markets will believe them. The problem is, I don't think the markets will believe them at this stage. And when we, in The Spectator, three or four issues ago, we were very critical of Andrew Bailey, the governor, because his messaging has been very poor and his colleagues with him. So I'm not sure the markets are believing the bank at all when it says this will peak at 5% and tail off. And I'm not sure how effective they can be. What, you know, And the monetary intervention, quantitative easing, I mean, that's still, that policy is still in place. But to counter its inflationary effect, which is in there somewhere, it would actually need to be reversed. They'd have to start taking money out of the economy by that mechanism. Well, that isn't going to happen either. So the only hope is that the physical hiccups of supply and demand will gradually start to ease. And that has been seen in some industries, and it will be seen in the shipping industry when they get more container ships on the water, but that's going to take another year or so when the containers are back in the right places and so on. That will ease. There's the microchip problem. that You know, there just aren't enough microchips in the world. And then there's the wage labour cost problem, which perhaps we might discuss as a separate item, as it were. But all these things have to adjust themselves to get the central banks off the hook, in a sense. Paul, markets are desperate for stability. They want to be confident. This is not a great time trying to predict what central bankers are going to do. Well, yes, but it sort of never is. I think that's always been the case. You know, When you look back, things look obvious, but at the time, it's always very uncertain what they're going to do. I think you could argue it's more difficult for them because of this extended period. We're still in unconventional monetary policy, strange enough, 15 years later, still unconventional. So it is certainly harder than normal to predict what they're going to do. But I think that's something investors permanently live with, to be honest. Mm. Paul, it was also a year of volatility in tech stocks, for example, with GameStop, NFTs, Elon Musk tweets. Has tech performed as well as you would have expected? 
I think it depends on the time horizon. I think if you look over a long time horizon, yes, I think it's exceeded many people's expectations because if you go back 20 years, the, the framework of reference was really looking at underlying cash flow generation, profitability, all, all of the standard metrics you would use to assess a business case didn't really apply to tech. We can remember when Amazon was losing tons of money and you'd have been mad in inverted commas to invest in it. And yet that hasn't been really what has mattered. So in the sense of tech sort of taking over the world, if you like, almost in terms of controlling data and information, I think that wasn't anticipated by most investors and therefore tech has been a positive surprise for those that have had the confidence to invest in it mm. and a form of rueful regret for those that stuck with the more standard financial ways of metrics for, for thinking about how to invest. But even uh, in recent times, I think tech has been a good place to invest and will remain so. Clearly, there is a regulatory threat right now in terms of whether it's out of control, the, the people that dominate this, this particular sector, and there could be uh, repercussions from a regulatory viewpoint. But that's more likely to be a bump in the road, I would have thought. Do you think we're all becoming too dependent on Silicon Valley and what they produce? Personally speaking, you know, absolutely. It, it is worth, you know, I just sometimes think, you know, what if the internet was switched off? Would it affect me enormously? Yes. We wouldn't <laughs> be putting think, out this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah well, we wouldn't be putting out podcast. I'd be heading over to the nearest garage to see if they still sell paper map books because, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to get to Guildford. So, yes, I mean, we're incredibly dependent, I, th I think, on tech, which is one of the reasons that they, it has such value in the financial markets. Is it such a bad thing, Martin, if we are dependent on Silicon Valley? I mean, after all, the improvements that tech has made to our lives has raised our living standards. Well, first, I would say I wish I'd bought more tech stocks. <laughs> uh, secondly, I think we should, you know, we should think of the Internet and the, the tech revolution of the last 25 years as like electrification, you know, early in the 20th century, like the introduction of drains and sanitation in the 19th century and railways. You know, these are great, great pieces of advance of civilization and they're, they're part of our lives and I think they're not going to go away. I think from your remark just now, your introduction to that question, the thing I would pick out, you mentioned GameStop. What I observe, which I think is a bad thing in the investment scene, is not so much that tech stocks are amazingly always going up. Some of them actually do represent the future, such as Tesla, for example, but that there is a kind of gambling mentality in investment markets, particularly amongst younger investors on online platforms led by influencers, rumor, not by any sort of serious analysis, as it were, and treating investment as being akin to gambling. And that spills over massively into the crypto arena, which is pure gambling, but has some sort of legend or theology kind of underpinning it and so on. But I do fear it's a, it's a lockdown effect. It's a pandemic effect that there's, a, there's an element of gambling crept in to personal investing which could go horribly wrong. So that's, I think, you know, another little crisis on the horizon. Martin, the FT reported that tech stocks are often the first to fall sharply with inflation, and they have been at the forefront of recent sell-offs. What should we read into that? As an indicator of inflation, you mean? I wouldn't read too much into a sell-off of stocks that have risen 
the way they have risen and that are subject to that new wave of sort of gambling stroke investment that I've talked about. I think it's a more interesting question and I'd love to hear Paul talk about which other kinds of stocks one might buy as a hedge against inflation. Do you buy, you know, do you buy utilities? What do you buy? Do you buy stocks that are heavily real estate based, for example? You wouldn't buy commercial property right now, given the way the high streets are going. But I wonder, what do you buy as a conventional hedge against inflation, other than a tech stock that you believe will go up forever? Well, I I think the answer is, firstly, clearly equities rather than fixed income is going to be a very challenged asset class if interest rates go up, self-evidently. But with regard to equities, the more that there is fixed assets, real assets underpinning the business model, the more protected in theory those companies are from the threat of, of inflation. But it's not quite that straightforward now in the sense that many of the the real assets that would have been a good hedge in the past are deeply unfashionable. So, you know, minerals or energy mm-hmm. in the ground would be in a, a real asset that you'd think, well, actually, if I own an oil well, that's got to be a pretty good hedge against inflation. Well, the problem with that, of course, is the green agenda is beginning to work against many of the asset types that you would think would be a good inflation hedge. So it's actually quite difficult to trade off those two. I did want to ask you about that because some hedge funders have bought cheap energy stocks as they are being sold off in favour of more sustainable ventures. What incentives is this creating? Well, I think there are some real issues here because I think one of the things that came out of the COP26 was the pledging of hundreds of billions of finance to drive in the direction of the green economy. At the same time, central banks have said that you know, part of their mission is the general state of climate change, and therefore they will be dissuading investors from putting money into things that are deemed bad, encouraging them to invest in things that are deemed good. But that will then sort of create an arbitrage because there will be amoral money, if you like, that might look at that as an opportunity But it'd be relatively brave to invest in those stocks because you have to assume that ultimately policymakers won't be able to hammer those companies. But, you know, if if you believe that we're still going to be using fossil fuels for some time yet, and if you believe that regulators and governments won't be able to stop you gaining profits from them, then a contrarian trade, if you like, is to invest in those sorts of assets. Paul, 2021 was the year in which the U.S. stock market in particular continued to push to new highs, but many are fearing a big correction. What do you think? I think that we won't see, would be my my guess, a major correction, because I think there's still going to be that policy push behind it. I think if one expected central banks and governments to be more concerned about the inflation we discussed, discussed earlier, then there might be a greater appetite to tighten fiscal policy, tighten monetary policy. Given that I don't think that's likely, there will still be liquidity being created through monetary policy, demand being created through fiscal policy, and that will continue to support stock markets going forward. So although on classic valuation levels they can look pretty pretty high right now, my expectation is that there will be another benign year in 2023. Martin, this year saw one major market, China, fall by some indicators by 20%, partially driven by the Chinese Communist Party's tougher line on tech policies, also driven, obviously, by the political and geopolitical implications of China's actions. What do you make of this? Well, China is now widely seen as a dangerous 
bad actor, as an expression that you sometimes hear, not a friend of the West, not necessarily a responsible global citizen, all of these things. And the Chinese economic miracle may have sort of passed its peak in the sense that China's own wage costs and phenomenal manufacturing capacity and so on has had its best moments. It's very suspect on things like intellectual property, rule of law, and you know contract law for foreign investors going in there. And it's extremely dubious in terms of human rights. And I particularly watch Hong Kong, where I used to live, with great dismay and concern and so on. So China is mistrusted by the rest of the world. It's ruthless attempts to sort of by a client base in the rest of the world, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, is regarded as suspect too. So there we are. But the key thing of all these things is if China's own internal growth rate slows, that has a major knock-on effect across the rest of the world. It's been one of the locomotives of global growth for some years, is that China is growing at, what, 8 9 10% or something? Well, if that's going down to 5% and so on, it has knock-on effects for the rest of the world. It also has potential internal consequences in China, disruptive or politically unstable consequences in China. So, no, that that is a problem for the world now, and we've seen it in the shipping crisis. The, you know, China's end of that has been one of the factors driving inflation. But I think China is a very unhelpful player in the world these days. Paul, to come back home, we started the year feeling optimistic about UK shares, particularly with Brexit thought to be done and dusted. Yet valuations remain pretty low. What's going wrong? Well, I wouldn't put that at the door of Brexit. I think with regard to Brexit, there are some positives and some negatives. And it really is unclear how it's all netting out at the moment. Clearly, there's concerns over fish, Northern Ireland border and so forth. But in terms of the the direct impact on those on stock markets, I think, although I'm, I don't claim they're not important issues, I'm, I'm not sure that's really, you know, what's going to matter. I think the, the more interesting challenge for investors in the UK stock market is really the types of company that are listed in the UK. When you look at the large cap companies in the UK, it does look a bit dusty and old fashioned stuff. So, you know, where, where are the tech stocks? Where are the exciting shares to invest in? And so I, I think what's really held back the UK stock market in comparison with some other global markets around the world has really been the composition of the index and the type of companies which are listed. And I think that is a, a challenge for investors because if your route to investing is through traded equities listed on the stock exchange, you're limited by the companies that, that are listed there. If the more innovative, interesting areas of the economy are raising capital not by listing on the stock exchange, then you can't access that money. And I think there is that dilemma between people who invest in the stock exchange and those such as private equity that can go into the other parts of the growing economy. Mm. Martin, what do you make of the Brexit factor? Some are saying that COVID has been masking Brexit complications, including trade disputes that have arisen over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, well, I think I think that's exactly right. I think it has masked the effect. I think it has put a lot of grit into the system. I think it was a major danger, for example, to our automotive industry, which was one of the few sort of gems remaining of British manufacturing. Its just-in-time component supply system was completely disrupted. There are various examples of 
you know, factories leaving or not being built here and being built elsewhere. So I think I was, you know, I was one of the few spectator writers who was in the end a Remainer, and I still think that economically it was a very dangerous risk to take, and we haven't seen that play through completely. The labour market factor, it's unclear, but there are figures that say over a million non-UK-born workers left during the pandemic, and most of them are not coming back, and most of those were EU citizens, and we see that absolutely directly in wage inflation and labour shortages, especially in the hospitality sector, because it's so visible. But across the economy, our labour problem is partly the Brexit factor. It's partly some other things, but you can't say it's not partly the Brexit factor. And that that's a very significant inflation element and also productivity and growth factor. So we're seeing it all coming through. And I look at Northern Ireland with some despair. I've heard that there is about to be a settlement that Lord Frost has, you know, been told to go and sort it out and it will be sorted out. But the irritation, the ill feeling that that has caused in Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland, the loss of respect for Britain in terms of the way we've negotiated that, I think that's all all disastrous. One result is a certain hostility towards us, the French, Macron, in the lead on that for his own political reasons. But it's not helpful to have a certain disrespect and hostility coming from the 500 million person trading block right next door to us. I mean, you know, so I could go on, but I, you know, I, I could get quite upset about we don't want to effect. upset you at 9.30 in the morning, Martin. <laughs> Let's talk about how you just actually brought us full circle, because we're now back to talking about the unexpected consequences that we've seen from lockdowns and reopening in the UK. This time last year, people were predicting a surge in unemployment, thinking that we were going to have chronic unemployment over 10%, Paul. Instead, we have roughly 4.2% unemployment. I mean, it's pretty close to where it was pre-COVID, hovering around record levels. And we're seeing labor shortages. We're seeing, you know, record number of vacancies. Employers are desperate to get people into work. As Martin says, this is a combination of the Brexit and COVID effects. But do we still fully understand the implications as we're coming out of the crisis element as to what the labor market's going to look like? Well, I I think there have been two theories. One, the great resignation theory, whereby as a result of COVID, a lot of people reevaluated their lifestyles and decided they were going to leave the labor market and just do little or nothing and if they had the financial ability to do that they could some have been able to finance that through the profits they've made in the property market over a generation and so forth the second thesis is more that people are leaving the labor market in its current form and wanting to become self-employed or contractors and that trend is creating friction which in the near term takes the form of labor shortages My own view is that it's the second rather than the first. I think the Great Resignation thesis is probably overplayed. But there is definitely something going on in terms of people not feeling they necessarily have to be you know, part of an organised company in the way that they would would have used to. I don't want to overstate it, but I think there's something of that going on. You almost have to go back to the theory of the firm. You know, why do we have companies at all? You know, in theory, everyone could just turn up to the marketplace every day and say, yeah, I'm a carpenter, I'm an electrician, and then they go off and do a day's work. Because that really doesn't work very well, we create companies and they're employed. But it may be that with technology as it is today and with attitudes changing, it may be that we have a looser 
structure. So yes, there are companies, but with a core workforce, but they're just naturally employing people on an ad hoc basis, and those people are willing to work that way. So the sort of the gig economy could be actually expanding into more conventional ways. You don't have an issue with sort of you know, Uber drivers, that's accepted. Well, could you have the Uber driver model in a law firm, for example? I think that's where we may be going, and I suspect it's frictional, and it will mean business leaders have to adapt to thinking about labour in a slightly different way to where they have traditionally. Martin? Yeah, I blame Prince Harry. Well, did you see the other day he came out with some, oh, some yes. kind of hot air about how, no, it's really cool to not want to go back to work. You know, that's okay. <laughs> you know, be mindful of yourself, care for your well-being by not going back to work. Well, I, I'm afraid to say I'm pretty old-fashioned on this one. I've been urging everyone to get back to work. I, you know, I'm very sorry that we're making this podcast in an almost empty spectator office because we've gone back to working from home because of the latest outbreak. I think it has been an unhealthy... Dev- I'm fascinated by what Paul just said about the sort of expansion of the gig economy. The, the sense during lockdowns and so on was that employers were having to show a bit more love for their workforce, be more caring, be more aware of their the family circumstances of their workforce and become more like old-fashioned employers, more paternalistic. And I rather thought that was a good thing. So I'd be sorry if the gig economy goes the other way. The other thing that might be wishful thinking in, in UK terms that ought to happen, might happen, is a move towards more automation, more robotics in factories, generally speaking, more artificial intelligence in the way businesses are run so that actually, in the end, you need fewer people. But if you have productive and profitable businesses, then the economy is strong enough to to support that. But if you, you know, don't go that way, then we have a less productive economy as a result of people not wanting to work again, or, you know, working at less than their full capacity, because they're sitting on the sofa at home, you know, or is that too unkind? We'll let our listeners decide if they relate to that or not, Martin. Paul, one of the good news stories of this year is the return of dividends, with the FTSE 100 now in touching distance of pre-pandemic levels. Should we expect the same next year? Yes, I I think so. There was clearly a lot of pressure during the early days of the pandemic for companies to reduce dividends because it seemed unseemly, particularly if they were getting help from the government in terms of their own finances. But clearly that has now passed. I think companies recognise that for many people receiving those dividends is an important part of their income. A lot of investors pay their day-to-day bills on the basis of the income they get from their portfolio. So I think it will continue and I think it's, it's very welcome for that segment of investors who actually want income. They don't all, of course, some are happy to see capital accumulation, but it's important to have that dividend flow. And we should stand up for the principle of that dividends need to be paid in the sense that you sometimes hear moralistic, somewhat left-leaning commentators saying, you know, there's something sinful about rewarding investors with dividends when people are struggling in other respects. But the fact is the whole capitalist system depends on a fair reward for risk capital. So the return of dividends has been a very important thing. It's been a very important signal in the banking sector that banks were able to Mm. pay dividends again and so on. So it's a very important element of the system. It needs to be there. 
Well, let's end with a question to both of you. What do you think investors should be keeping an eye out for as they go into 2022? Paul? I think the key thing to watch for is the degree to which central banks respond to the higher inflation. I think we've sort mm-hmm. of agreed, you know, it isn't transitory. Everyone accepts that now. If they're willing to allow inflation to become embedded in the economy, that sends things in one particular direction. And the, you know, it'll be key for the labour market because people will then expect pay rises to pay for these higher rates. On the other hand, if they say, no, we, we cannot run the risk of going back to where we were in the 1970s, we, we fear that degree of concern and start increasing interest rates, then that sends the economy and the financial markets in a completely different direction. So I would be like we used to many, many years ago, you know, hang on every word of the central bankers, to not to listen to what they say, but it's as much their body language. <laughs> do they believe what they say? And what, what are they really thinking? And what are they really going to do? Has- and if I had to make that call, it would be they won't have the courage to put up rates even if they think it's necessary. Wow. I think it's easier to sit on your hands. It has been fascinating to see Ben Broadbent and also the, the new chief economist, Hugh Pill, come out separately in interviews and basically go against the bank's own forecast. I mean, it really is quite a tumultuous time. Martin, what are you looking out for? Well, as an investor, or my advice to the sort of, you know, the personal investor, the the person approaching retirement, looking at their savings, I'd say, with the greatest respect to my friend Paul here, breathe down the neck of your wealth manager and say, in my portfolio, where is the hedge of inflation? Explain to me what you've bought on my behalf that protects me from this wave of inflation. And by the way, could you buy me a small gold mine or diamond mine or something like that? That would really be good. But I think from an investor point of view, the fact is you get no return on cash, you get negative return on cash. We've experienced that for a decade now. So you might as well be investing actively in something. I think thinking of our, you know, innovator awards and all of that, it's a very good time to dabble a little in the sort of venture capital angel investment field to back, you know, one or two youngsters with exciting startup businesses, for example. If I had to add a sort of PS that was rather gloomy, I would just keep an eye out for a serious sort of reversal of the recovery. I think that you can't rule that out. There have been one or two economists, that very talkative one who we generally don't take seriously, called Danny or David Blanchflower from America, came in with saying consumer expectations are indicating a possible recession. Other old-fashioned economists would say that multiplication of energy costs this year traditionally that's an indication that there could be a recession ahead this latest omicron wave and its interference in the recovery that goes on through the spring if it gets worse you know we could see the the economy really turn i'm sorry to introduce that gloomy note but i think you need to add that as a ps there is a risk i don't know what the percentage of that is there is a risk that this recovery will stop and will reverse a bit I worry about that. However, from the investor point of view, just keep on investing. Don't sit on cash. Take one or two bolder risks. You may hit on the Tesla of the next decade. Martin, Paul, thanks so much for joining the Spectators podcast. And thanks again to Charles Stanley for sponsoring.